I'm going to start by asking that you would join in a very focused time of prayer before I even get into the message itself. So if you would, bow your heads with me for just a moment. Heavenly Father, we're praying, Lord, today that we would not leave this room the same way, that we would not leave this service the same way. Unless your spirit so moves, then we sing songs and we hear words and we walk away unchanged. So, Lord, we are praying from the very beginning that you would remove any and everything that would keep us from focusing upon you. God, we are praying from the very beginning that you would allow there to be an unusual movement of your spirit in this place. God, may we not miss a moment. May we be overwhelmed with an awareness of your presence. And God, may you work in and through us for our good and for your glory. And God, we will be careful to say thank you and to praise you. In Jesus' name, amen. In 1903, a novel was released entitled Conrad in Quest of His Youth. And there is a scene that matches many people's perspective when it comes to prayer. Conrad asked a man, Mr. Erickson, this question. Do you think that prayers are ever answered? He went on to say, I have sent up many prayers and always with the attempt to persuade myself that some former prayer had been fulfilled. But I knew in my heart none had ever been. Mr. Erickson thought for a moment and he replied, Once I was passing with a friend and we came to a ladder leaning against a house. And stepping to the outer side of it, my friend lifted his hat to it. You may know the superstition. He was a university man, a man of considerable attainments. I said, is it possible that you believe in that nonsense? And he said, no, I don't actually believe in it, but I never throw away a chance. Mr. Erickson's inflection changed, and he said, I think that most people pray on that principle. They don't fully believe in it, but they never throw away a chance. End of quote. What incredible perspective. And sadly, it's true. Many people, Christian and non-Christian, they put prayer in one of two categories. It's either religious ritual, it's just what you do as a religious or spiritual person, or they put it under a category of skeptical hope. Like somebody is wishing into the universe. They're, they're hoping, but there's still some level of skepticism that is involved. In many ways, it becomes a way that we hedge our bets in order to accomplish what it is that we actually want to accomplish. So, for example, if getting what we want means crossing our fingers and wishing on a star, then a lot of people are going to do exactly that. If getting what we want is going to involve going to a medium or going to a psychic, then many people will do exactly that. If getting what we want means that we manipulate circumstances or that we check a horoscope 
or that we pray, we want to include prayer, then people will do exactly that. Prayer becomes one of many means that people use in order to accomplish what they want. Now, some mature believers might say, Paul, I would never do those things. Those are unbiblical. And chances are you're probably right. But as Christians, we do very similar things that are just more acceptable in Christian circles. Instead of crossing our fingers, some people might wear a gold necklace that has a cross on it, and they kiss the cross for good luck in the moment. Instead of wishing on a star, we just claim verses out of context and hope God's not paying attention when we do. Instead of consulting a medium or a psychic, we consult the latest Christian celebrity on TikTok or on Twitter or on YouTube just to see what they have to say as opposed to what the Word of God has to say. Instead of checking a horoscope, we allow our Bible to fall open randomly, point our finger in, and then claim whatever it is that we just pointed at. Oh yeah, and we pray because we want to make sure we cover our bases. So here's my question for us. And this is a, a serious message today. Here's my question. It's the one I've been processing. It's the one I want to bring to you. Do you really believe in the power of prayer? Or are you unwilling to throw away a chance? Do you believe in the power of prayer? Or are you unwilling to throw away a chance? So today we enter into our week of prayer, and I'm excited about this. We are one week away from Easter, and as of this morning, we have people from 73 different cities, 11 countries around the world that are joining us for this week of prayer. I'm praising God for that. I believe that easily by the end of today, those numbers could double. In fact, if there's people that are watching right now online and you've not yet taken a time, if you're in the room and you've not taken a time to sign up with us on that, you can go to godcan.org, just click on join us, and very easily, 10 seconds, you're able to sign up and to participate in what we're going to be doing in this upcoming week. But this is an entire week that we're focused on prayer. We're focused on God doing something unusual, God doing something exceptional, God doing what only God can do. We are asking in this week that God is going to raise up a bold generation of prayer warriors who are willing to engage God in prayer. We're asking this week that God would send revival to churches and to nations. That God would do something that would cause the unbelieving world to stop and to notice that there is a God in heaven and he has plans for his people here on earth. We're praying that God is going to burden the hearts of young people, burden the hearts of parents, burden the hearts of senior adults to not be content with stories of what God has done in the past, but yet pursue him passionately for what he can do in the future. We're asking God to do things that you just don't see happening a lot right now. And it's not that God is not actively moving. The issue is sometimes we're just too easily satisfied. Is it that we're asking God to do the impossible? That we're begging God for things that many people might look at and say, 
you're foolish to even ask for God to do that. How bold are our prayers? So I am praying this morning that people walk away from this message completely convinced of the power of prayer and fully confident that God can do abundantly above all that we ask or think. I'm going to be teaching one truth from two different verses this morning. Here's your truth. God can do, we should ask. God can do, we should ask. What does that mean? It means God can do what we can't do. God can do the impossible. God can save your spouse. God can bring your wayward children back to the foot of the cross. God can send revival in this city and revival in this nation. God can heal the sickness that's in your body. God can bring your marriage back together. God can set your family on a new path, blazing a new trail with a legacy that points directly back to God alone. God can do it. The, the issue is God is unlimited in his abilities, but many times we are anemic in our prayers. God can do, we should ask. God can do, we should ask. I invite you this time, go with me in your Bibles today to Matthew's Gospel, chapter number 19. Matthew chapter 19. We're going to be in verse number 26, and then we are going to move over to Ephesians chapter 3. In each of these passages, it provides an essential part of the key truth that we've already mentioned. God can do, we should ask. So here's what it says, Matthew's Gospel, chapter number 19, verse 26. And looking at them, Jesus said to them, With people this is impossible, but with God all things are possible. Heavenly Father, in the name of Jesus, we are asking you today that you would make this truth the truth of Ephesians 3 comes so alive in our hearts that we are never content to just have a mediocre prayer life anymore. God, I'm praying that you would change something in us today. God, may you do what only you can do, and Lord, we'll be grateful for that. In Jesus' name, amen. The passage says, but with God, all things are possible. It's another way of saying nothing is impossible for God. As believers, that is a truth that we are very quick to affirm. We're very quick to believe. We're even very quick to amen. We, we believe God can do the impossible. But here's the issue. Even though we believe that, we can functionally forget that truth when we get overwhelmed, when we feel under pressure, and when we feel as though things are not changing fast enough. I say functionally forget. It's not that we mentally forget. It's not that we don't believe the big truth. But in that moment, we function as though that truth is not relevant. That truth is not real. Nothing is impossible for God. Now, there is no greater picture of God doing the impossible than what we find in this exact story. So here's the story. Here's the setting. The story, the context, is that of salvation. For salvation to occur, God has to do the impossible. 
Here's what I mean by that. God has to take a person who is entrenched in sin, a nature that is inclined to sin. He has to take a person who is entrenched in sin to a place of repentance and brokenness over that sin to a place of trusting Jesus as the answer for that sin. That is a process that he has to take them through. When that happens, he literally brings life out of death. That is impossible apart from something that God alone can do. Only God can bring life out of death. So for us to be considering, can God do the impossible, this is a great place for us to begin because if you're a follower of Jesus Christ, God has already done the impossible for you. It's not something you got to have to say, well, I've heard of God doing big things there, but God's never done that for me. If you're a follower of Jesus Christ, he already did the impossible for you. He brought life out of death. It's so important that we personalize that truth. So in this story, a young leader comes to Jesus seeking eternal life. He seems to have everything going for him. He's young, he's rich, he's powerful. According to verses 16 through 20, he's also moral and he's religious. He is a stand-up guy. He's the type of person that we're very quick to say, he's this close to salvation. Have you all ever done that in your own life? You kind of put people in different categories, those who are really close to salvation and those who are really far away. And kind of in those that are close to salvation, we say they're asking the right questions. They're doing some of the right things. It's just a matter of time, and that person's going to get saved. And then there's the people on the whole other end of the spectrum. You put them under a classification of it's going to have to be a miracle. You, you, you look out there, and you know, you believe what Romans says, all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. You believe all have sinned. You got your garden variety sinner, and then you got your professional sinner. And the, the professionals are those that, I mean, they just seem really, really good at it. They, they, they've made a life out of this. They, they go deeper. They, they live antagonistically towards God. They're chasing after the world with everything they have in them. And you look at that person, and you put in your mind, and you just say, God would have to do a miracle to save that person. Here's what the truth of this text will tell us. God has to do a miracle to save any of us. Not just who we consider to be those that are strong sinners, but even the garden variety sinners. Did you know that there's none of us who God found right outside the gates of glory? None of us. All depraved. All sin-filled. All in rebellion against God. All unworthy of the gospel of Jesus Christ. All of us have nothing to bring except the filthy rags of our self-righteousness. God has to do a miracle for salvation to occur. God does the impossible. That is, he removes deception and he opens a mind to truth. He awakens a dead spirit that is bent on rebellion against him. He creates a desire for righteousness in a world that says, do whatever makes you feel comfortable. He does all of that. And listen to this. If you don't think it's a miracle, he does it with missionally challenged, evangelistically awkward believers sharing the gospel with them. It's a miracle anybody gets saved. 
So in this story, even though the guy is asking the right questions and he's coming to the right person, self-reliance and self-righteousness were still barriers. He wanted eternal life, but he wanted his riches and he wanted his self-righteousness even more. He was unwilling to release what he had for what he could receive. That's why in verse 23, Jesus says, it is hard for a rich man to enter the kingdom of heaven. Jesus is not saying there's anything wrong with wealth. There's nothing wrong with money. There's nothing wrong with riches. What he is saying is that oftentimes when there is wealth, there comes self-reliance. And the self-reliant person does not feel the need to trust God because they think they have it themselves. Self-reliance is a deceptive barrier. Even after becoming a believer, there's a lingering attitude of self-reliance that still plagues the church to this very day. If you were to go back into Revelation chapter 3, verse 17, that was the issue that was pointed out with the church at Laodicea. Listen to these words. They said, I am rich and have become wealthy and have need of nothing. That is like the motto of self-reliance. And yet the verse goes on to say, they didn't realize they were spiritually wretched and miserable and poor and blind and naked. Self-reliance is a deceptive barrier that keeps people from relying on God. So Jesus says in verse 24, it is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich man to enter the kingdom of God. Unless God reveals our need for him, we keep on depending on ourselves and depending on our resources. So when the rich young ruler basically says, I'm not willing to do that, then the disciples are now faced with this question. They're like, then who can be saved? If this guy can't be saved, who can be saved? That's the context in which Jesus says, with people, this is impossible. But with God, all things are possible. God can. I want you to think for just a moment about a person in your life, family member or friend, somebody that you know. You've been praying for them for a long time. And yet it seems as though they are living in rebellion, wanting nothing to do with God. God can save them even in the throes of their rebellion. Isn't that exactly what he did for the Apostle Paul on the road to Damascus? Somebody might say, but I know somebody right now, they're not even giving attention to God. Did you know God can get a person's attention even when they don't want anything to do with him? That's exactly what he did for Nebuchadnezzar, if you'll remember. God can do anything. God can remove deception. He can replace it with truth. He can change a person's character. He can turn the hearts of kings. God can do anything. If you're a follower of Christ, you have already experienced the miraculous power of God in your own life. He saved you. He found you when you didn't even know he was looking for you. Have you ever thought about where your life would be today? Had grace and mercy, the hounds of heaven, not chased you down? Where would you be today had God not come for you? Your testimony, your, your story 
is a, a testimony to the fact that God can do anything. You say, Paul, don't use my life as an example. I've got flaws. I've got failures. We all do. But the flaws and failures of our life today only mean God has more work to do in your life. It does not disqualify the fact that he has saved you. God can do anything. Now take that idea. Let's go over to Ephesians 3, 20 and 21. It says, now to him who is able to do, remember our statement, God can do, far more abundantly beyond all that we ask or think, we should ask, according to the power that works within us, to him be the glory in the church and in Christ Jesus to all generations forever and ever, amen. The Apostle Paul has now taken three chapters in order to declare God's limitless provision that is available for his children. And in the previous three chapters, he reminds believers that when the Holy Spirit empowers us and Christ indwells us and God's love masters us and the Spirit fills us, when those things happen, God is able to do exceedingly abundantly above all that we ask or think. God can do those things. So in verse number 20, I want to show you, it's maybe in your notes, it'll also be on the screen. It shows a progression of God's unlimited ability in yielded believers' lives. This is what the grammatical structure looks like. Now unto him that is able to do all, above all, abundantly above all, exceedingly abundantly above all. In fact, Ruth Paxson, she called this verse the pyramid progression of God's enablement. And out of the King James Version, she, she put together this pyramid to help believers see this, this staircase of what God is offering to us. So here's the next one. Unto him that is able to do above all that we think or ask, above all that we ask or think, abundantly above all that we ask or think, exceedingly abundantly above all that we ask or think, according to the power that worketh in us. The Apostle Paul is using every conceivable word and combination of words to say the unlimited power of God is available for believers and is a part of what is residing in you as a follower of Christ. The word do, it means to make, cause, effect, bring about, accomplish, perform, provide, or create. God is the one doing the work. God's the one providing. God's the one stimulating. God's the one making things happen. He is able to do above all that we ask or think. That's a reference back to our prayers. When you're asking God for something, you're, you're praying. And he's saying, God can do beyond all that you're praying about. He's doing beyond all that you can even think about. That's, that's what God can do. God has brought me under conviction on this for years. And it's something that he has brought to the forefront of my mind more and more in the last couple of weeks. My prayers are too cautious. At what point did we stop believing God could do anything? At what point did we stop asking God to do abundantly beyond all that we ask or think. 
Instead of bold prayers, we pray cautious prayers. And this is, this is me. It might identify with you. This is me. As I've prayed and I've asked God, why is that? Here's a couple of pieces that have come to mind for me. For me, I'm afraid of praying bold prayers. Because if it doesn't happen, I don't want to look foolish in front of people. So I pray cautious prayers. Instead of praying bold prayers, I pray cautious ones also because of the fact that I'm concerned about what other people might think. Did you know that there's some Bible heroes that they did not get the memo that you're supposed to pray cautious prayers? For example, Abraham. Abraham prayed that God would withhold his wrath on Sodom and Gomorrah for a handful of righteous people. And God heard his prayers. That's a bold prayer. Moses prayed to see the glory of God, the the visible manifestation of the inward reality of God. God put Moses in the cleft of the rock and he covered him over with his hand and he passed by. And after he passed by, he removed his hand so he could see the back of him. And that one encounter, according to scripture, when he walked away, his face was aglow with the radiant glory of God. We're the believers today walking out of their prayer closet with the faces glowing with the presence of God. Hannah prayed that God would bring life out of a barren womb, and God did it. Joshua prayed for the sun to stand still, and God did it. Samson prayed for extra human strength to make one final stand for God, and God did it. Elijah prayed for fire to come from heaven, and God did it. The early church prayed, and thousands of people came to Christ in a matter of hours. Prison chains fell off. Demon-possessed people were delivered in the name of Jesus. Sick people were healed. Churches were birthed. The gospel reached the known world in less than 20 years. Listen, that's what happens when bold prayers meet a sovereign God. you got to hear my heart in this. My heart is burdened for the church. And some of your hearts are burdened as well. I know because you've shared it with me. My heart's burdened for the church. What, what happened to that kind of church? What happened to those kind of believers? And I'm specifically talking about the church in America right now. We have small pockets of gospel-centered churches and there's individual believers that are running after Jesus with all of their hearts. But that's not the norm. This is a church at Sherwood that has a rich legacy of God doing incredible things. But my burden is that we don't become complacent in what God has done. If anything, it should make us hungrier. Because we've seen what God can do. We we should never be content with pursuing God with hot passion in our hearts. I'm burdened over what I see happening in the church right now. I'm talking about big C church. My burden is, what will it take to shake believers up out of spiritual apathy? 
there's a lot of apathy in the church. There's a lot of take it or leave it in the church. There's a lot of we're going to focus on the things we want and not necessarily the things we need. You know what happens when people start to pray and they spend ample time in the presence of God? He convicts of sin that we don't want him to convict us of. He causes there to to be a stirring that sometimes gets in the way of our agenda. So we, we rush in and we rush out. We don't take the time to sit in his presence. What's it going to take to wake up the church in America? Will it take waking up into a world that is filled with wars and disease and social unrest? We already have that. Will it take losing our civil liberties, seeing corruption at every level of government, watching people openly defy God in the common square? We've already got that. Will it take watching the church compromise its convictions and walk away from biblical authority and prostitute the gospel for selfish gain? We've already got that. Will it take watching our families destroyed or watching the enemy pick off our kids one by one or watching sin destroy the people that we say we love? That's already happening. What what will it take to wake up the church? We've got a God who says, I will do abundantly, exceedingly, beyond all that you can ask or think. Just ask me. Just pray. And we got, we got believers, we got churches that we use, listen, we use prayer to transition one point of the service. We don't beg God to work in our churches. We don't beg God to work in our lives. What's it going to take Church, how many more churches around us are we going to have to see abandon the authority of Scripture before we recognize there's a battle happening? Dads, how many more families will be destroyed because the dads are unwilling to step up and lead in the home? Moms, how many more babies and grandbabies are going to be taken captive by the enemy before moms say, I've had enough of that in my house. What's it going to take for the church to focus on this? Listen listen to me carefully. In the church's efforts to appear hip and woke and relevant, we have lost much of what makes us distinct and holy and powerful. We have created spiritually domesticated believers who posture much and display little of the power of God. We're big on virtue signaling, little on eternal impact. But in every generation, God has a remnant. There's always a remnant. There's always a group that's saying, I'm going to pursue him no matter what happens. I'm going to... Hold on to his word and believe no matter what culture is saying. 
Every generation has those parents that will say, as for me and my house, we'll serve the Lord. There's going to be some people in the church that will say, not in our church, not in our community. There's going to be people get desperate enough to say, by the grace of God, help me to be a game changer in this generation. Help me to help lead others to Christ. There's got to be that group. The question is, will they be in this room? Will they be watching online? Are you the one right now that God placed in your family, in your circle of influence, because you're the one called to drop to your knees and intercede? You're not there by accident. He did not give you that job by accident. There's lost people that are around you right now. He put you there to be salt and light. You're not in your neighborhood by accident. You're there to be salt and light. When will the people of God say, I've had enough. I got a God who can do anything. And yet I've been acting like he can do nothing. This is me. This is me. Everything I'm sharing with you, God has been working me over with in the last several weeks. And this is the part I ask God, why is it, God? Why is it that I know your truth and yet I don't live it? Why is it that... I, I have flashes of wanting to pray like that, but very quickly I move back into my safe routines. What's wrong? What's the issue? He revealed three things in my life. First, I'm unwilling to pay the price to stay in his presence. Staying in the hot, radiant, convicting, consuming, illuminating presence of God will cost you something. Second part, I'm often more concerned with worldly success than eternal rewards. In my flesh, I'm concerned about what people think, how I'll be perceived, and whether or not I will live up to the expectations I placed in my own head. The third thing he showed me is I'm too pragmatic and impatient in my prayer life. We all drift towards pragmatism at some point. We continue to do the things we think are working. And if something doesn't seem to be working, we try something else. And he's shown me in my, my life, I pray, and when I don't see immediate results, I try to work it out in my own strength. And over and over again, it's robbing me of an opportunity to see God at work at a new level in my life. That may or may not resonate with some of you. But if you ask yourself the question, why is there a difference between my prayer life and what I see in Scripture? It's not that God is any less powerful. Often it is because unbelief, unconfessed sin, and careless living have robbed us of God's power being expressed through us. That's a part of the reason tonight is so important. Tonight, we're entering into a time of repentance and prayer. We want to help believers see if there's things that have been going under the surface in their heart and in their mind that they've just not thought about, but it's hindering God's activity in and through their life. This text tells us that God can do exceedingly abundantly beyond all that we ask or think. Here's a thought that hit me. Believers don't need to beg God for new power. We need to believe God for present power. 
We need to believe that he has given what he's promised that he gave. So go back to your key truth. God can do, we should ask. God can do, we should ask. God's abilities are unlimited. The question is, will we ask? Let me close with a final illustration. Many of you have heard the stories of George Mueller's prayer life. He's probably one of the prayer giants of the last couple hundred years. In an interview with Dr. A.T. Pearson, George Mueller was asked if he had ever asked God for anything that God did not give. And with characteristic exactness, he said, 62 years, three months, five days have passed since I began to pray that two men might be converted. I have prayed daily for them ever since. And as of yet, neither of them shows any signs of turning to God. Puzzled, Dr. Pearson asked, do you expect God to convert them? And Mueller's response was, certainly. Do you think God would lay such a burden on his child for 60 years if he had no purpose in their conversion? Not long after George Mueller's death, Dr. Pearson was preaching at Bethesda Chapel. He shared that particular story. Afterwards, a lady walked up to him and said, one of those two men to whom Mr. Mueller was praying was my uncle. He was converted and died two weeks ago. The other man just came to Christ in Dublin. Here's the thing. There is no expiration date on prayer. Many of us today are walking in the blessings and the covering of saints who have long ago been in glory. God may choose to answer in our life, or he may choose to answer after we're dead. The question is, will we pray? God can do, we should ask. If you would bow your heads with me for prayer for just a moment. Heads bowed, eyes closed for just a moment. As we are closing out this service, I'm praying we are not closing out what the Spirit of God is going to be doing in prayer. I want you to ask God, what are you boldly asking him to do in your life today? Ask God, what will it take before my prayer life becomes what I see in Scripture? How many more family members does the enemy need to entice? How many more days do we want to wake up to scandals happening within the church? How many more friends and family members will slip out into a Christless eternity before the church of Jesus Christ says, God, use me? Ask God, what is it going to take? Maybe God's already revealing that to you. Whatever that might be, I want to encourage you. Bring it to God and confess it before him. Say, God, I don't want that to be the case. In just a few moments, our pastors are going to be at the front of these aisles. Some of those, their wives are going to be with them as well. You might want to come forward. You might want to pray at the altar. You might want somebody to pray with you or for you. It might be that where you're at, you just want to pray right there. That's okay. There's going to be a song that is being sung over you. 
And we're doing that because we don't want you to feel split between do I worship or do I pray. This is a time to respond to what God is doing in your life. I want to encourage you, whatever it might be that's hindering you being able to walk in the fullness of what God has for you, bring it before God, lay it down, forsake it. Thank God for the forgiveness that you have in Christ. For some of you this morning, you need to get saved. I'm just being as blunt as I can be. You need to get saved. God has been convicting you that you've been going through the motions, that you're not actually a believer. Today, you need to get saved. Some of you have been trying to battle things out in your own strength now for months or years. And God keeps bringing you back to the same breaking point. And you keep trying to do it again next week. This morning, leave it with God. Trust it with God. Pray bold prayers with God. Dads, some of you, right now, God is using it in a huge way in your family. And you're leading well. Keep leading. Some of you, you know you've not been leading as you should. Don't, don't let the convicting spirit of God go in one ear and right out the other. Handle that before God. It might be that there's something else God's working on in your life. The issue is don't walk away from this moment. If God is bringing something up, bring it to him. I'm going to ask you if you would, pray with me. Heavenly Father, in the name of Jesus, Lord, we have nothing that we can do except from bring our desires and our needs and our imperfections before you. So, Lord, today I am asking that you would set some people free. I'm asking God that you're going to save people this morning. I'm asking you, God, right now that there's going to be some marriages that today get healed for your sake and glory. I'm asking you, God, that there's going to be dads that will step up and say, I'm going to lead my family the way that God's called me to lead my family. I'm praying, Lord, that you're going to do things today that are going to shape eternity. Lord, do it for your sake and for your glory. In Jesus' name, amen. Would you stand as we sing?